Thank you for choosing to watch this webinar. The title of it is Victory Over True Guilt, Defeating a False Sense of Guilt. My name is Rick Thomas, and I'm so glad that you're here to watch this presentation on this most important subject. For those of you who are listening to the podcast version of this webinar, thank you for jumping on and listening to the audio version. If you do have time, please make your way over to our ministry's website so that you can freely watch the entire webinar. And the reason I ask you to do that is because I'm going to be building out an infographic from, from beginning to end, and I want to talk about this subject as I describe three different individuals. The first person is someone who has sin, they experience true guilt, and they have the ability to reject a false sense of conviction, and they live in the freedom and the power of God's gospel. Now, that is the individual that we all want to be. And then there's a second person I'm going to build out in this infographic, and that is the person who does similarly. They sin against God's law. They experience conviction. They confess it. They receive God's forgiveness. But yet there are lingering, ongoing, residual effects of, of, of shame and guilt that they carry around in their souls. And there are many of us in the body of Christ who live this way that we haven't learned how to reject these feelings of conviction and live like person number one in the freedom and the power of the gospel after we have asked God to forgive us. And then there is a third person that I'm going to describe for you, and that is the individual who disagrees with God. They reject any conviction whatsoever, and they choose to live a life according to their own dictates. Now, that is a path that I trust none of us choose or desire to go down. And so for those of you who are listening to the podcast version, if you can move over and eventually watch the webinar, I hope that you will do that so you can see this drawn out for you along with other animations that I'm going to build out. The big, the big idea in this webinar is that guilt and conviction— are two of many kindnesses from the Lord. We would not know there was something wrong with us if the Spirit of God did not let us know. But because we live in a post-Genesis 3 world, there is confusion about guilt and conviction. And so this webinar addresses the confusion while bringing practical insight into how to respond to true conviction, plus the effects of feelings that are not from God— and then finally, how to live in the freedom of the Lord's forgiveness. And so that is the big idea. And with these things in mind, let's start working on that infographic. And so we have an individual here. We'll just say that it's me. I violate God's standard. I sin. I transgress the law. Now, that is a condition for guilt. When we sin, we should experience the convicting work of the Spirit of God in accordance with the Word of God. We are guilty before God, and we should know it. Therefore, there should be conviction, and as I said, legit feelings of guilt or conviction from the Lord is a good thing. By way of analogy, Let's suppose that you lacerated your hand and you could not see it and you could not feel it. That would be a horrible experience. 
you could bleed out or they could be ongoing repercussions that could be detrimental to your body. And so pain, as painful as pain is, is a good thing. Pain signals to our brains that there is something wrong and we need to act now where our souls are very similar as far as conviction is concerned. It is analogous to pain. And when we experience conviction from God, rather than being discouraged by it, rather than rejecting it, we want to dig inside of it. And the first thing we want to do is to affirm it, to make sure that this conviction is legitimate, that we have transgress God's law. Now, if we affirm that the conviction is legit, then there is a process that we want to work through so that we can live in the freedom and the power of the gospel. But before I get to that, I do want to spend a little bit of time talking about conviction because we can misunderstand or misdiscern conviction. And so God, in his mercy to us, has given us at least four ways to be able to legitimize or discern whether the conviction is real or not. One of those, and the primary way, of course, is is God's Word. That is the canon. That is the rule. That is the primary source material that lets us know that we have done wrong. Any other piece of literature in the world that you read can be true or not true, but if it is true as far as letting you to know the difference between good and evil and whether you have sinned or not, they got their information from the Bible. That is the Bible, is the primary source material. Therefore, we want to be sound exegetes. We want to understand God's Word because that is the only resource material that we have, primarily the primary source material that we have to tell us if we are living good or living in evil ways. Unfortunately, because we have the ability to misinterpret and misunderstand God's Word, He has given us another means of grace to discern legitimate conviction, and that is the Spirit of God. We can grieve the Spirit of God who is operational in our lives. We can also quench Him. And so if the illuminating force of the Spirit of God is actively working in us, that is another means to affirm if we have legitimately sinned. Of course, it is possible to misunderstand God's work in our souls as well. And so there is a third means of grace, and that is the community of faith. You want at least one good friend who is competent, who is courageous, and who is compassionate enough to come alongside you to help you work through legitimate or illegitimate sense feelings of conviction according to the operational work of the Spirit of God in us and our understanding of the Word of God. And so having that friend who is courageous, meaning they will not rubber stamp you. They're not afraid. They will speak the truth in love. They are compassionate, meaning that they're not going to be mean-spirited or harsh or unkind to you. And so they are courageous. They are compassionate. And then they are also competent in handling God's Word. They will not mishandle the truth. And here are three means of grace, because you want to activate all three of these because you you want to know if what you did is truly right or truly wrong. And then there is a third means of grace, which is your conscience, your inner voice. 
Your conscience is your internal moral thermostat. And it's important that we have a good theology of the conscience. I talk about the conscience in my webinar, Biblical Decision Making, and I would encourage you to watch that webinar to get a more detailed understanding of our consciences. But for this webinar, I do want to talk about it briefly because it's so important. God has given us an inner voice, and our goal is for our inner voice to be in line with the Word of God. And when your inner voice is in line with the Word of God, you have a biblically informed conscience. That is the sweet spot. Your internal moral thermostat, your inner voice, and God's voice are singing the same tune. And when they are, there is no cloudiness. Uh, there is no opaqueness. I mean, you see what God sees. You hear what God hears. And that is the perfect place for all of us to be. Unfortunately, because of our Adamic tendencies, our former manner of life, we can have a convoluted conscience. And because of that, we cannot hear as we ought to hear and cannot perceive in ways that we should perceive. And so with that in mind, I do want to talk about our consciences just briefly. And so, again, the sweet spot is when our voice and God's voice are saying the same things. But we understand in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the entire chapter, all 13 verses, that there were a group of people who had a weak conscience. These people were formerly Jews, and then they became Christians. They were regenerated, and they brought their former manner of life into their Christian experience. In the case that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 8, these Jewish people had been trained their entire lives. Their whole Jewish experience said that you do not eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols. Paul says that you can do that. It's not a thing. It's okay. But he warns the believers that because some people, due to their former associations, these Jews and their past association, their past religion experience more explicitly, they've been trained, and so their conscience is singing a different tune. Their conscience is out of line with God's Word, and so we want to be careful. We want to love them so that they're caught, love them in such a way that their consciences can be brought in line with God's Word so they can have clarity to discern uh, truth from evil, tr truth from falsehood, or uh, good from evil. Now, there are several ways that we can weaken our consciences. I've listed a few here on this graphic. Our religion, of course, can do that. Uh, I came up in a legalistic religious experience, and that really messed up my conscience. And so after I came out of uh, legal, legalistic religion, uh, I had to do a lot of work to reshape my conscience to bring it in line with God's Word. Sometimes our associations can alter our consciences, cultural practices, and personal preferences that we have. And so 
If you have questions about this, there are two things that I would appeal to you to do. One, you can uh, come to our ministry's website and dialogue with us on our community forums. And then two, or maybe this should be the first thing you should do, is talk with your pastor, someone in proximity to you who is competent in God's Word and will help you to work through a weak conscience. But you want someone who can love you biblically to bring you out of a weak conscience because what it does is it dulls your hearing to where it's hard to see here and this is hugely important when it comes to trying to discern between good and evil so that you can walk out accurate repentance practices. And so on one side of the spectrum, you have a weak conscience, but we also learn in 1 Timothy 4.2 that you can have a hard conscience, as the King James says, that their conscience was seared with a hot iron. And that is true as well. Now, there are many ways to harden your conscience. Ongoing anger, gossip, deception, sinful sexual practices, or just a lack of repentance. I refuse to repent. And if you refuse to respond to God's conviction when there is legitimate sin in your life, and I've listed some of them here, like anger, gossip, deception, and sinful sexual matters, If you refuse to repent, your conscience will go from dull to hard. There will be a barrier between you and God's words. You will not be able to read it correctly. You will not be able to discern uh, the Spirit of God operating in your soul. Uh, You will not desire to listen to God's community, and so these means of grace will not be active in you. And so this concept of conviction is important, and because uh, we can skew conviction or misperceive it, having all four of these means of grace operating in your life to affirm one another is essential. And then as I teased out in a more granular level, the conscience, because it's so important, but I would appeal to you to go to my biblical decision-making webinar uh, to learn more about the conscience and also the webinar on the doctrine of repentance, and that will help as well. It is important that we activate these four means of grace so that we can discern legitimate feelings of guilt. Now, let's say that that I have violated God's standard, I have sinned, I am experiencing legitimate feelings of of guilt as affirmed by God's Word, the Spirit of God, the community of faith, at least one appropriate friend, and then my inner voice is telling me, it's signaling to me that you need to respond biblically to what you have done. Therefore, what I want to do first is I want to confess it. A confession simply means that I agree with God. God, I agree with with you. I am wrong. You are right. Your word is right. I am wrong. The Spirit of God is is convicting me of this. And just to play it safe, I asked another friend, my spouse told me, no, that that is sin. And my conscience is also in that beautiful sweet spot right now. And all four of these means of grace are telling me that I have sinned, and so I'm confessing it to you, and I'm asking you to forgive me. And based on those things, God does 
transact with you forgiveness, and he declares you not guilty. Let me illustrate what I mean. When you're trying to work through confession and forgiveness, the first thing that you want to do is you want to determine the sphere of offense, as you see here on the screen. The sphere of offense, I have a big circle here, and I am inside the circle. Whenever you sin, you want to you want to discern the ge- geography or the boundaries of the sin, meaning who all is involved in this sin event that I committed. Well, God is always involved, meaning I have sinned against God. God is always the offended power, no matter what the sin is, big or small. God is the one who is sinned against. And so the part of sinning first of all, is a vertical operation. You want to begin by recognizing that you have sinned against God. Sometimes other people can be inside this circle or this sphere of offense. In this case, I have my wife here and one of our children. And so I have determined the boundaries of my sin. My sin encompasses I've sinned against God, I've sinned against my spouse, and I've sinned against Uh, one of our children, and so that is the sphere of offense. Now, the second thing that I want to do is to begin working out this sphere of confession, which is basically the same size as this sphere of offense, and so I want to go to all of them. I agree with God, as I outlined earlier. I go to my wife, and I let her know, I agree with God that I have sinned, and so I'm confessing it to you because you were in the splatter zone, and I sinned against you too, and then I would go to uh, our child and ask for their confession, uh, confess my sin to them as well. And then the third step, the sphere of forgiveness, which again is the same size as the sphere of confession and the sphere of offense. And so I ask all four individuals in this illustration, will you forgive me? I do not apologize by saying I'm sorry because it doesn't give them the opportunity to transact. And so I ask God to forgive me, and he does, based on the life and death of Christ. Based on the gospel, he transacts forgiveness with me. I ask my wife to forgive me and our child, and they forgive me too. And so the rule of thumb is the spheres of offense, confession, and forgiveness are similar as you see here on the screen. And so I violate God's standard. I have legitimate feelings of guilt. I confess it to all the parties that are involved in the sin event that I committed. I ask all of them to forgive me. God primarily declares me not guilty as well as the other participants in that sin event. At that point, I accept their forgiveness and I reject any false sense of guilt or shame or fear. The lingering residual effects of conviction must be stamped out at this point. Now, that is not easy for some people to do, and I'll get into the details of that in just a moment, but I do want you to understand that for many people, this is not an amputatable thing that they can just amputate it. I feel a sense of guilt even though I have been forgiven, so I'm going to amputate it. I'm going to cut it off. As Jesus talked about in Matthew 5.30, I'm just going to cut it off and move on with my life. I can take that thought captive, as Paul taught us in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. I take that thought captive, I submit it to the obedience of Christ, 
and I live in the the freedom of the gospel. I experience the peace of the gospel. I experience the joy of the gospel, and that is a wonderful way to live. And this is the condition that we're aiming for after we violate God's standard. Now, I, there are more things that you can list here in addition to joy, peace, and freedom, as you see here on the screen. But I did want to talk about these three briefly, and maybe it would be a good exercise for you to list many other, as many benefits of living in the freedom of forgiveness, the power of the gospel. Maybe you can list many other benefits. It would probably be a good discussion in a small group or a Sunday school class. But these three here, joy, peace, and freedom, are essential. Joy is something that we have internally, but is also manifested externally, and it affects our relationships. And you've been around that joy-filled Christian. That is a person who is legitimately living in the genuine forgiveness of God, and they also live in the genuine forgiveness of others, that the slate is clean between God and everyone else. There is no other way to respond but joy. Our greatest debt in life has been resolved at the cross in salvation, and then repeatedly, because we continue to clean up our messes, there is no other effect that we could, I mean, that is one of the primary effects that we have is that we live a joy-centered life, and that is experienced by others as well. So it's an internal and external condition. And then also peace, as you see. Peace, too, is an internal, external condition. Having the peace of God that passes all understanding is a beautiful characteristic. It is a beautiful internal way to live your life, but it's also external. And maybe I can illustrate that by talking about the antithesis of the peace-centered person, and that is the fear-centered person. If you live or associate on a regular basis with a fear-centered person, well, they export that to you as well. They make your relationship with them difficult because what they're experiencing on the inside is manifested on the outside, and it affects external relationships. And so peace primarily is an internal condition of the soul, but yet it is something that we export just like joy. And if you're around a joy-filled Christian, a peace-centered Christian, then it affects you in a very possible, in a very positive way. And you want to be affected by those kinds of people. And then the third characteristic here of the person who is rejecting any false sense of conviction is freedom, the untethered soul, meaning they are untethered from any condemnation that God has because God is not condemning them. They are untethered from any kind of manipulations from, from other people. They are living in the freedom and the power of the gospel. So these are just three of the many benefits that you have and that you can experience when you have the ability, after you confess your sin, receive God's forgiveness and any forgiveness from anyone else transactionally, you accept that, then the benefits of the gospel begin to roll up and accrue inside your soul, which also are manifested externally. And so this is person number one, and this is how we want to live our lives. But then there's another kind of individual as well. He is the person who experiences legitimate feelings of guilt. He confesses it. He agrees with God. He receives transactional forgiveness from God and any other participants in the sin event. He is declared not guilty. He legitimately accepts that but he has a hard time rejecting 
feelings of conviction. Conviction, feelings, shame, fear, it's residual. And some people, because of their former manner of life, let's go back to the 1 Corinthians 8 Jewish person who became a Christian, and let's say that they intellectually understand forgiveness and freedom, and they live in it, but because of their former manner of life, it's harder for them to shake it, and so guilt feelings can still have a residual impact on their life. Perhaps you are a person who was raised by an authoritarian, mean-spirited parent to where you had a conditional relationship with that parent. If you did well, then then things were kind of okay. And if you did poorly, then things were not okay. And so you learned to live legalistically and to jump through hoops. And that had a huge shaping influence on your former manner of life. And then you became a Christian and you brought that former manner of life, as Paul talked about in Ephesians 4.22, that is corrupt and it has deceived desires, and one of those deceitful desires is this desire to please your authoritative parent, and now you bring that into your Christian experience, and God becomes your authoritative parent in the most positive way, but for you, it's not all that positive because your conscience, your inner voice has been shaped, it has been weakened, and so then when you sin against God and ask for forgiveness, you feel like the other shoe is going to drop because that has been your multi-decade experience with that authoritarian parent. That is just one illustration of how guilt can continue to remain after you have asked God to forgive you. And what that does, it, cre- it creates internal soul noise. Now, I suspect that you have several friends, if not a lot of friends, who have ongoing residual soul noise, and you do not even know about it. Now, maybe some of them, you do know about it. And and the reason they have this ongoing soul noise is because they do not know how to live practically in the freedom and the power of the gospel. One of the ways that you can know about it or potentially discern it is because they don't export joy. They are true Christians, genuine Christians, but they don't export joy. They don't export a peace and, and you sense that they really don't live in a freedom, well, maybe this is a dot that you can connect without judging them harshly, but trying to discern them so that you could come alongside them. And now you're understanding that this person doesn't manifest joy or peace, and they don't seem to be a free soul. Well, maybe they have soul noise. Uh, Maybe there's a disconnect of the gospel in their lives where they are legitimately living in forgiveness salvifically. They have been born again, and they regularly confess their sins, but because of shaping influences or a former manner of life, they have increasing soul noise, well, you want to come alongside and help them. And so what I want to do for you is I I want to draw out some repercussions or consequences of living in increasing soul noise on the next slide. But first, I want to take a brief coffee break and talk about our partnership in the gospel as we share the practical message of Christ to the world. That is the heartbeat of this of this ministry is my heartbeat 
Uh, I lived as a Christian for many years, not being able to connect the gospel to my life practically. And then as God began to teach me these things, I wanted to go out and teach others. And I had no idea that this ministry was going to not just form, but it would expand globally to where people around the world can be, uh, can uh, benefit from these resources like this webinar that you're watching or listening to now. And so I want to make an appeal to you, uh, but staying in line with this webinar, I want this to be a guilt-free appeal that I make to you. I don't want you to be guilted into anything that I'm going to suggest, but I do want you to consider to do what you can do to help us, to got, to partner with us in this gospel adventure, and I have six uh, suggestions here on the screen. Now, the one that all, I think all of us can do is to, is to pray. If you benefited by this ministry, and I, I imagine you have, I mean, if you watched this webinar thus far, maybe you've participated in some of of our other resources, then I would just ask you that you pray for our ministry. Uh, put us in your heart, put us on your mirror, in your bathroom, put us on your refrigerator, and then as often as you can, and often as you will, would you pray for our ministry? And pray any way that you believe God would have you to pray. But the primary thing is, is that God would continue to show favor on this ministry so we can continue to reach the world with the practical message of Christ. Will you pray? regularly for our ministry. Two, would you like us anywhere you can like us? On social media platforms, uh, would you just like and follow us? If you use the platform and we are there, uh, would you do that? These things are somewhat uh, simple to do. Uh, number three, would you write a review? Uh, wherever you can write a review, like on Amazon for, our, for my books or a podcast, would you write a review and send it to your pastor? Just write a note. Just write a brief note. Send an email. Send a text. Send a letter, send a card, say, hey, I have benefited from this ministry, and I think you would too. I think our church would. And would you ask them, just write a review. Send it to a friend or a family member. Say, hey, I want you to check out this. Write a review, uh, whether it's on a platform or you send it to a friend or to your pastor. Number three, would you share our resources? Share this webinar with 1,000 of your closest friends, and don't delay. Share all of our other resources as well. They're free. We made this decision a long time ago. Uh, it was about 2015. Uh, we started giving our resources away. I think that was the time, 2015. And we were going to trust God that he would underwrite this ministry as he moves hearts uh, for people to give to this ministry, which is number five and six you see on the screen. You can make a one-time donation. Uh, you can make a recurring donation. You can support our ministry financially. And so you can go to the donate link on our website, and you can learn how to do that. But again, by the grace of God, we're going to keep building resources uh, we have a 10-member team. There's a lot of financial responsibility that we have on the back end of this ministry that that the people who experience this ministry, uh, they just want to experience it. They just want the resources, and, and they're not uh, perceptive to what goes on on the back end. And it's fine. They don't have to be, but I am saying that there is a, there's a financial responsibility, a financial burden that we ask people to generously donate and support. And so if you're able to do that, please do that. So choose from these six things and do as many as you can and partner with us as we continue to take the practical message of Christ to the world. Thank you so much. All right, so I'm talking about a person who confesses their sin to God. They ask for forgiveness. They, they accept it. 
the transactional forgiveness from God and anyone else that they sinned against in the sin event, but yet the guilt feelings remain, and that creates increasing soul noise, and that becomes problematic. And so I want to walk through a few consequences and repercussions of soul noise. Uh, first of all, one of, the con- one of the consequences or repercussions could be that you could move into, drift into a legalistic life. Uh, you want to assuage this noise, and rather than understanding and connecting the gospel to your life, uh, you begin to pay. And again, if you, if you have a person, like as I was illustrating earlier, who was reared by an authoritarian parent, for example, or they lived in a legalistic religious system, they've just been trained this way, and there could be a temptation to want to live legalistically, which is just going to exacerbate the ongoing soul noise. Perhaps the person that you confess your sin to gaslights you, and they tell you that you need to do more. Uh, you got off too easily. Maybe you gaslight yourself where you say, I can't believe that I can be free of this sin. Depending on the heinousness of the sin, you could think that way and gaslight yourself. I cannot believe that God would forgive me. It could be your former manner of life, your shaping influences, because my daddy never forgave me or, or other people didn't ne- never forgave me for the things that I did wrong. I can't believe that God would forgive me of this. And so you gaslight yourself, and so you begin to live in kind of a works mindset that will only amp up that soul noise. And the weight of that, doing this residually in an ongoing uh, fashion, uh, it can frustrate you to the point to where you can morally compromise. It's like, I'm just so tired of living this way. You can get into an attitude of, I just don't care. I just don't care. And so I'm just going to binge watch Netflix through the weekend. Uh, I'm going to, you know, start drinking alcohol. I'm going to do pornography. I'm going to. I mean, you can create any kind of bad habit or, or improper relationship, or create other temptations, or or succumb to other temptations to escape because of this soul noise. It can attempt you to moral compromise. Now, when that happens, now you now you have complicated the original problem. You're not living in the freedom and the power of the gospel, and you just added a layer of sin or sins on top of that through moral compromise. And if this continues on in your life, the imposing weight of this can overwhelm you to the point to where you're, you have gone from discouragement Uh, The process would be going from discontentment to discouragement to despair to depression. They get uh, progressively worse, and you can uh, end up into a state of depression because of the imposing weight of not living in the freedom of the gospel, the ongoing feeling of conviction, and maybe even moral compromise, that it begins to overwhelm you, and so now there is depression. It could lead to a bondage of fear. Uh, fears like paranoia or cynicism, or you could be afraid of God or afraid of others. You could be a people pleaser, which ties back to legalism now as also a bondage uh, to fear. And similar to moral compromise, it could create hostility. I'm just so frustrated uh, by this ongoing soul noise that I have 
And you can do things as releasing mechanisms like gossip about somebody, for example, which is you elevate yourself to feel better about yourself. You put someone else down. Uh, gossip is a common response to the hostile soul. Uh, anger, of course, is a form of hostility, jealousy, criticalness, and, of course, ongoing frustration. And then a a fifth or sixth consequence or repercussion of soul noise can be bitterness. This is another long-term effect like depression. The ongoing impact of a self-atoning lifestyle, trying to work out your salvation according to your own self-reliant efforts, will not only can lead to legalism and moral compromise, maybe lead to depression, bondage to fear, hostility. It can make you a, a bitter person. Now, if you know someone like this, where you see the tentacles of these sin patterns in their life, then maybe consider some of the dynamics that I'm presenting to you here, and maybe it would be a good time to have a conversation with them to see if you can help pull them out of the rut that they are in. And if you are in this rut, where you feel the conviction of God, you confess it, you ask for forgiveness, you accept it, but you have the residual feelings of conviction that remain, and it's amp amping up soul noise, then you need to come alongside someone and ask them to help you to sort out what are legitimate feelings of guilt and what are not, and to be able to take those that are not captive and submit those to Christ and then you confess those that are legit so you can get to uh, the person over here on the left side of the screen so that you can experience joy, peace, and freedom. Now, if you don't have someone that you can talk to, I do want you to come to our ministry. We are a dialogue ministry, and we have free forums. It is a free resource for you, and we would, be, we would love to give you advice. Our team would love to guide you because you can do many things by yourself, but sanctification is not one of them, and I, I implore you, I appeal to you to find that help because you're in a, a cyclic trap here, as you see on the screen, and you need someone to come alongside you. And then there is a third category of person, and this is the person that I trust that none of us want to be. This is the person who disagrees with God. It's the opposite of a confession. They do not agree with God. They reject conviction. Maybe someone has confronted them. Maybe their own internal moral thermostat is signaling to them that they have done something wrong. You see, sin has to be dealt with, and sin will be dealt with one way or the other. And there are many ways to deal with sin, but there is only one right way. I have been talking thus far about the right way, the right path to get rid of sin, which is confession, forgiveness, acceptance, reconciliation, and then an excellent experience with God and others. That is the one right way. All other ways are wrong. And so if an individual has sin, whether the person was confronted about their sin or internally, their conscience or co-knowledge, their inner voice was convicting them, they have to deal with it but they're not going down the confession path, and so they disagree with God. Well, here are a few of those other alternate possibilities, and again, every one of them is wrong. One of those is justification. Declaring yourself 
not guilty. I am not guilty. Now, you can rehearse this over and over again in your mind, declaring yourself not guilty, and go back to that conscience graphic that I was showing you earlier. Your conscience will slowly go from dull to hard, and then after a while, the signal will go away. It will be absolutely imperceptible. You will have a hard conscience because you have a, a, an endless theme that you're repeating to yourself. God is wrong, or you're talking to some other person. You are wrong. I am right. I am justified in what I'm doing. I am not guilty. You will harden your conscience. Another way of doing this is to alleviate. This is the person that chooses escapes. Uh, I mentioned earlier binge-watching you know, television or movies over the weekend or over your life. And there are many ways to alleviate. Alcohol is obviously another one. Uh, surfing the Internet. Social media is a way of alleviating. There, there are, I think we would all be shocked at the number of Christians who alleviate or try to alleviate their increasing, amping soul noise that's going on, what's happening inside of them. They alleviate it uh, rather than going through the right process to, to rid themselves of the soul noise and alleviation like social media is so common and ubiquitous. And I think many people are ignorant of what they are actually doing to themselves by spending so much time on social media. But there are many other ways or many other ways to uh, alleviate or to escape uh, this what's happening inside of them until eventually they get to the place of imperceptibility. They get to the place of a hard heart, a hard conscience, uh, to where they, not, they don't know it anymore, and then they're flying blind. Now, once you're flying blind, uh, that, is the, that is the most horrible place that you could possibly be. Blindness to your own blindness is the worst form of blindness, and all of these mechanisms I'm laying out for you thus far to justification and alleviation there are ways of rejecting God, and eventually you will be flying blind. A third way of responding to legit feelings of guilt or conviction, wrong way, that is, is to blame. Now, this is to put it on somebody else, and this is common as well. Uh, you, you'll hear it sometimes when people say, you make me so mad. Uh, that is a common way. But there are other ways uh, of saying it as well, but these are ex- excuse making. Uh, they, they all f- kind of fold into each other. Uh, there are different ways of saying the same thing, but blaming is uh, one of those. Rationalization, as you compare yourself to other people, you rationalize your sin. Uh, one of the common ways that we express it in our family that you probably have heard, if if everyone is jumping off a cliff, are you going to jump off a cliff as as well? Our children asked us when they were younger, I said, why do you keep saying that? And of course, we had to walk them through that. But rationalization is a, a horrible way of thinking about what you have done wrong, especially as you compare yourself to other people and you make it okay. And if you make it okay, again, if you make it okay in your conscience, eventually the signal will go out. And then a fifth way of doing that is to excuse it. Now, this is what Paul was talking about in Romans 2 when he was talking about the conscience. He says the Gentiles who have the conscience, they accuse or excuse themselves. And so you can 
excuse it by ignoring it. And so all five of these, and you could probably add to this list, but these are five primary ways that we disagree with God and we disagree with others. And so we are rejecting conviction, legitimate conviction. Again, you have to deal with sin, and there is only one right way, and that is the pathway of confession, forgiveness, acceptance, reconciliation. But if you choose justification, alleviation, blaming, rationalization, or excusing it, well then, I would refer you back uh, to the conscience graphic that I pulled up here on the screen, particularly the top half of of the graphic here of the hard conscience, as Paul talked about in 1 Timothy 4.2. When we do this to ourselves, and I, I would just appeal to you that if you have the slightest signal, the slightest sense that you're in this right column of a person who is disagreeing with God and others about what you're doing wrong, if there's just a little bit of light squeaking in, coming in under the door before it goes completely shut, then I would appeal to you to do something right now. Do not justify your actions. Do not blame. Do not excuse. Do not rationalize. And don't go into alleviation mechanisms because all of those things, all they will do is shut the light completely out. Uh, you'll be in a soundproof room at that point. You will not be able to hear any signaling from the Spirit of God or anyone else. And from that point forward, you will be flying blind. Perhaps it would do some good to read Psalm 32 where David talked about it. He said it explicitly that when he kept silent about his sin, that the heavy hand of God was weighing down on him, and it was not just having a spiritual adverse influence on him, but it was affecting his body too. And so if there is the least bit of light or sound as your conscience is signaling to you, I would appeal to you to respond to God in that manner. And what you would want to do is you want to circle back around as I'm sketching out here on this graphic and go back go back home uh, to use uh, monopoly language go back to the starting point and say i violated god's standard and begin working through that and similar to the person the second person i described with who is at the point of increasing ongoing residual soul noise you need to have somebody to come alongside you and again, the type of person that you want, at least three characteristics. You want competence in God's Word. You want courage that they won't succumb to fear of a man, specifically fear of you, where they are afraid to tell you the truth. You need a person with a backbone. And then third is compassion, not so much of a backbone that they're mean-spirited, that they are unkind. And so you need a competent, courageous, compassionate friend. Find that person. And if you don't have that individual, 
schedule, then please come to our ministry and let us serve you. We would love to give you some kind of guidance to start working through this because you do not want to be on the right-hand side of this screen. And all of us have stories of individuals who continued to reject God's Word. They continued to ignore what their conscience was telling them, and their consciences got harder and harder. Sometimes people will say, I don't know how they could do what they do. I don't know how they could sin that way. I don't know how they can act out the way that they act out. Well, it's not really that hard to understand. A person who is doesn't have a sin plan, a biblical sin plan, a person that doesn't understand the doctrine of repentance, a person who is not regularly walking through the steps of repentance, and I'm not talking about the hardened criminal. I mean, I could be. And I'm not necessarily talking about the person who goes out and kills someone. I could be. But I'm talking about people in our churches that are justifying, alleviating, blaming, rationalizing, and excusing. It is a low level of Christianity that I'm talking about, and there are many people that live this way because they don't have a biblical sin plan. They're not actively walking out the steps of repentance on a daily basis. As Luther said, the Christian life is repentance and ongoing repenting. And if we are not, as Christians, living in an ongoing repenting lifestyle, well, we're either living in uh, category two here, and we have ongoing increasing soul noise, or we're living in category three, that we're in this conflict with God and others all the time while we're enacting one of these five mechanisms to, uh, to silence our conscience, and that is a bad place for any of us uh, to be. So I want to wrap up this webinar, Victory Over True Guilt and Defeating False Guilt, by sharing a a few reflective thoughts. Number one, question, do you see guilt as a mercy from God or an enemy that discourages you? Now, this is an important question to spend time reflecting upon. As I started out this webinar, I was talking about if you lacerated your hand and you could not see it and you could not feel it, if you couldn't see and couldn't sense it, well, that is a terrible place to be. And we want to come around to the place to where we see conviction as God's kindness to us, that God loves us so much that he would signal to us that we are doing wrong when we're doing wrong. Now, that signaling can come from reading God's Word. It can come from listening to a sermon. It could come from listening to a song. Uh, It could come from a friend. Uh, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And when when those messages come and we have legitimately sinned, is your first response, God, thank you. Now, I understand, going back to the analogy of physical pain, we don't say, God, thank you for this pain, but we respond to it promptly. And, and maybe that's a better way of thinking about it. One of the ways that you see it as a mercy from God is by the speed in which you respond to that mercy from God, or do you see it as an enemy that discourages you? If conviction discourages you, then you have two problems. One is the sin that you're committing, and the second is the discouragement that you have uh, by 
knowing that you have sin. And so there is a complicating factor if sin is discouraging to you. Now, I realize it can be discouraging in a moment. I think all of us are discouraged in a moment. If you cut yourself, uh, I uh, sliced my thumb the other day as a paper cut. It was cardboard, and so it was a little bit deeper. And I was discouraged in a moment, but I didn't live in ongoing discouragement. Uh, I responded promptly to it and did what I needed to do to assuage the pain. And so when I say that do you see guilt as an enemy that discourages you? I'm not necessarily talking in a moment because I think all of us experience that, and I think that's quite normal. But if we live in a state of discouragement because of the conviction that we have, then we need to find some help. Question number two, how long does it take you to enjoy the freedom of forgiveness after asking for it. So there is a timeline here. Now, for many of us, we will find that that timeline, well, hopefully that timeline shrinks as we mature in Christ. There should be a a correlation between a shrinking timeline and maturity in Christ. In our early Christian uh, experience, our immaturity as babes in Christ, when we sin, uh, there could be complicating factors that we are working through before we finally get to the place of enjoying freedom of forgiveness. Let me give you an example. Early in our marriage, I sinned against Lucia. I got angry at her, and I I asked her to forgive me. I asked God to forgive me. And it was several hours later uh, where we were singing together in the the living room. We were worshiping the Lord. And I asked her, uh, I put my hands down. My hands were extended. We were worshiping the Lord and singing. It was really a good moment. Uh, But then these thoughts began to creep in about what I had done to her earlier that day. Now, God had already forgiven me, and and she had forgiven me, but the residual effect of conviction was lingering, and soul noise was starting to amp up above the music that we, as we were worshiping the Lord. The timeline from living in the freedom of the gospel after being forgiven by the power of the gospel was a, it took several hours, and so we stopped the music, and we started talking about what I had done to her earlier in the day and how I was still struggling several hours later. The question is, how long does it take you to enjoy the freedom of forgiveness after asking for it? One of the ways that you can tell if you are maturing in Christ is by an ever-shrinking timeline, meaning that you can sin against someone, not recommended, but it happens. You sin against someone. You ask for forgiveness, and it's like two children on the playground. Uh, They get in a scuffle, they get in an argument with each other, and then they reconcile, and they're playing in the playground again. They have a shortened timeline. That is the way that you want to be. Uh, Another illustration would be that you and a friend or you and a uh, family member, a spouse maybe, you get in an argument on the way to the church meeting on Sunday morning. And then as you pull into your parking spot, uh, you ask your spouse or relative, a family member to forgive you, and they forgive you. You ask God to forgive you, and He forgives you. And you go into the church meeting, but 
the lingering residual effect of what you did is still hanging out in your soul. And so you can't immediately go into worshiping God at the the first beat of the first song. Uh, you have to wait to uh, till the second stanza or the second song or maybe uh, on uh, farther along in the meeting, the church meeting, before you can truly engage God. That is an extended timeline, and that means that you have work to do. When we ask God and others to forgive us, and it is given to us, and I'm talking about legitimate sin, legitimate asking, and legitimate uh, giving, extending of forgiveness. All this is genuine. When we do this, that timeline should be immediate. We should be able to step into that song and engage it at the first note. There shouldn't be an extended timeline. And so the question is, how long does it take you to enjoy the freedom of forgiveness after asking for it? Now, don't be discouraged by that, but if there is an extended timeline, you want to work on shortening that. And again, that will affirm where you are on the Christian maturation uh, continuum. Now, this is especially important in your familial relationships, the people that you live with on a daily basis. If, if people within your family are continuing to carry the residual effect of ongoing sin after forgiveness has been extended, uh, then these are conversations that you have to have, like the conversation that Lucia and I had years ago when I sinned against her and the residual effect of that sin was ongoing after forgiveness was requested and given, but yet I was still living in the bondage of this feeling, this false sense of conviction that I was carrying, which meant there was something wrong with my theology. There was something wrong with my understanding of repentance. There was something wrong with my understanding of, of forgiveness. And so we had to talk about those things, and perhaps you would need to do that as well. I would encourage you to watch my Doctrine of Repentance webinar. It's a one-hour presentation on the 13 steps, the incremental sequential linkage of how to repent. And I spend a good bit of time talking about this idea of conviction as well as the conscience, as well as how to ask forgiveness, what forgiveness is, and it will help you to shorten the timeline. Question two, how long does it take to enjoy the freedom of forgiveness after asking for it? Number three, how would you characterize your conscience on most days. It's a characterization, meaning on most days. Uh, how are you normally characterized? What is the general disposition of your conscience? Not in a moment, uh, not at, like, maybe if there's a sin thing going on between you and someone else. I mean, there's some struggling. But your normal disposition, the normal state of your conscience, how would you characterize your conscience on most days. Go back to that graphic that I showed you earlier. Is it on the weak side? Is it on the hard side? And of course, in between those can be dull. Uh, you can go from a dull conscience to just a straight-up weak conscience. You can go from a dull conscience to a hard conscience. But on that uh, spectrum, and of course, the absolute middle line, the sweet spot, is when your conscience is living in this beautiful freedom, as characterized by freedom and joy and peace, to where your voice, your inner voice, and God's Word 
are singing the same note. You're in perfect harmony with each other. Or maybe there is some work to do there. Now, if we can help you with that, please let us know. The question is, how would you characterize your conscience? Generally speaking, characterization on most days. Number four, if you struggle with false feelings of conviction or false feelings of guilt, what keeps you from Christ's freedom. Now, this is an essay assignment, okay? I mean, if you're struggling this way, this is an essay assignment, not just an essay where you do some writing, and if you're not a writer, that's fine, but you do a lot of reflecting. Go take a walk, uh, but think through these things, and if you're not a journaler or a writer, uh, make sure that you can retain these bullet points, at least bullet points. I would encourage you to write them down. And then that you go and talk with someone who has those qualifications of competency and courage and compassion. Because if you struggle with false feelings of conviction, you you have to target what keeps you from Christ's freedom. What is wrong? Because Paul is telling us in 422 of Ephesians to put off the former manner of life, and if you don't know what to put off, well, you can't put it off. And so there is a necessity to identify and to isolate those things that keep you from Christ's freedom so that you can go to the next step of renewing the mind. And so if you struggle with false feelings of guilt, what keeps you from Christ? Christ's freedom? Number five, what shaping influences have kept you from gospel freedom? Now, this is similar to question number four, but I want you to think about shaping influences, because if you didn't get there on question number four, if that wasn't part of your essay answer, then I want you to to pinpoint shaping influences. Now, I have an entire webinar, Human Motivation and Shaping Influences, and I do a deep dive into shaping influences. I talk about I think more than a dozen shaping influences, and that's not an exhaustive list, uh, but it will really help you to think about your shaping influences without getting lost in the morass of your past. Uh, You do want to spend adequate time thinking about your past and some of the developmental shaping influences that make you into who you are today that has given you a former manner of life, just like the Jewish people that came into their Christian experience, they trucked that former manner of life across and over into their salvific experience with Christ, and it hindered them in gospel freedom because of the shaping influence. And that's why I specifically asked this question because of what I talked about earlier with 1 Corinthians chapter number 8. And then final question, will you reach out to someone who can help you with specific plans to change? Now, I want you, I mean, if you struggle in these ways, I want you to start writing out specific plans to change, and then you go and talk to someone, and they will bring more specificity. Uh, They will help and add more specific plans to change so that you can collaborate together. Having another person looking over your shoulder, speaking into your life, would be beneficial. When the prodigal son began to walk out repentance in Luke 15, when you get down to verses 17 and following, you see he started scripting out a plan. He said, how many 
uh, hired servants does my father have? He said, I will go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and earth. And so what he's doing is he's scripting out a plan. So it's important that when we are thinking about changing our lives, that we want to do two things. Start writing out specific plans and then reach out to someone, not only to add their plans or to tweak the plans that we have so that we can collaborate, but we also want someone to hold us accountable, someone who will walk with us through this. Now, again, if you don't have that person, uh, let that person be our ministry, and we would love to give you advice as best we can. Victory over true guilt, defeating false guilt. The big idea is guilt and conviction are two of many kindnesses from the Lord. We would not know there was something wrong with us if the Spirit did not let us know. But because we live in a post-Genesis 3 world, there is confusion about guilt and conviction. This webinar addressed the confusion. This webinar brought practical insight into how to respond to true conviction and the effects of feelings not from God. And this webinar talked about how to live in the freedom of the Lord's forgiveness. That is the big idea. Thank you so much for watching. Again, if you have any questions for us, please come to our ministry's forums and let us help you with whatever those questions are. Victory over true guilt, defeating a false sense of guilt. I am Rick Thomas. Thank you so much for watching. You have been listening to Life Over Coffee with Rick Thomas. If you have a question for Rick, you can let him know by sending him a note through his website, rickthomas.net. That's rickthomas.net. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your coffee.